If you've got a Bible and want to follow along, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're continuing our Christmas series called The Gift. Uh, the greatest gift ever given to our world, to get, uh, given to anyone anywhere, was when God gave the gift of his son, Jesus, and sent him to earth to uh, connect with us, to live among us, and to reveal himself to us. And so as we work our way through the Gospel of John this week, we're going to be in verses 14 through 18. And the big idea that we've been working through, you know, the first week we went through the first five verses and recognized that the gift that John described as the word, that the gift was actually God. God himself come to us. And this was the gift that, that came from heaven for us. And last week we, uh, we unpacked the idea that the, the gift came to give, or when God came, God came to give uh, a new life and to offer to us the opportunity to be born again, to have uh, the spirits within us rejuvenated and revived and renewed so that we could connect with God. In our sinful state as fallen humanity, we lost the ability to connect with God. And so Jesus came to restore that connection. And this week, the big idea that we're unpacking is this, that God gives us gracious truth. When God came to earth, he came with a certain uh, perspective, a certain attitude, direction, a heart, and we see it in and through the person of Jesus. When Christmas begins to come, we start thinking about gifts, giving gifts, receiving gifts, right? And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. Um, can be a great time, nothing wrong with it. Um, the gift that God gave reflects his generous heart. Uh, usually, though, we, um, we think it's more blessed to give than receive, right? We have that saying. And yet, uh, it is fun around Christmas to think about gifts and giving gifts. And in my home growing up, Christmas was a big deal, and my parents would, um, you know, would prepare for it. And as I got older, I kind of recognized that I could um, plant some seeds uh, of ideas in my parents' minds and and that might produce something on Christmas morning. And so as I hit like 12, 13 years old, I think I was in seventh grade, one of the things started to happen is, um, you know, I started to go through that change uh, that young people do moving towards adulthood, you know, we um, call it the teenage years. And so um, I started to notice in some of the magazines that I got and comic books and stuff that there was this really big muscle-bound dude in them. And there were like advertisements about, hey, you could become like this. And of course, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the... Um, bodybuilder that was famous in those days. And so uh, I thought to myself, man, I want to look like that. I was a skinny, scrawny little kid and you know, didn't, didn't hardly have any muscles. And so I asked my parents, I planted that seed, uh, uh, could I this Christmas get a weight set? And I just knew that if I got the weight set, that I could get the muscles that Arnold Schwarzenegger had. And so uh, I planted that seed and I was hopeful. You know, we were, lived on a pretty meager income. I wasn't really sure that it was going to happen. My dad was in seminary and working kind of part-time. And so I didn't really have a lot of hope, but boy, I was hoping. I just wanted that so bad. I wanted those weights. And so Christmas morning came, ran downstairs, and sure enough, there was a weight set. I was so excited, man. I thought, this is it. I'm moving towards Arnold. Pretty soon I'm going to be there. I'm going to impress everybody. And then so, you know, I started messing around with them a little bit, and I tried to do some, you know, I think they had some instructions with them, you know, like, okay, here. It didn't take very long before I started to realize that to get the muscles that Arnold had, it was going to take a lot more investment, time, effort than I was willing to give. And so uh, I came to the sad realization that getting the weight set was not going to equate to having the muscles that Arnold had. And I was disappointed 
Maybe uh, you've had a story of that in your life where getting a gift, you, you put all your expectations and hope on it, you just thought it was going to change your life, only to be a little disappointed in the end. You know, our saying that it's more blessed to give than receive is real important because the reason we say that is that getting and receiving kind of brings out the self-centeredness in us, the greediness in us. Those aren't great traits. Giving, though, brings out the generosity in us. It teaches us to think about others. And so it is good, and that, really, that saying really is true. It's better to give than receive. There's one time, though, that it's better to receive than give, and that is when God is the giver. When God's the one giving, you want to be on the receiving end, right? Amen. And so in our text today, as we realize who God is and what he came to bring us, that he came with gracious truth is going to impact us, and it impacted the whole human race. But when we begin to look into our text this morning, the first thing we're going to realize is that um, when God gave, the gift that he gave was the gift of himself, And so the first thing we see in the first verse here is that God came to live among us. Follow along as I read the first half of verse 14 in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. The apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he describes to us who this gift is, uses the word, word. In the Greek, it's the word logos, and it has the idea of um, uh, the breath and the expression and vocalization to speak, um, to communicate. And so um, John uses this word to describe Jesus, God in the flesh, and, and, and an important concept that he adds to all this right now. First, he acknowledges and identifies the word as being God, but now he communicates to us that the word, this word, God himself, became a human being. The word flesh really has that idea of just flesh and bone, our skin and our muscle and the things that make up our human body. So important to realize and recognize that Jesus, God, right, took on and inhabited an actual human body. John was combating a belief system at the time that was really a heresy And uh, it was a belief system, philosophy, religion called Gnosticism. And we've been talking about that because to understand the Gospel of John is to understand what he was addressing. And Gnosticism was so powerful in the ancient world that it really became a force that pushed back or pushed against Christianity, influenced it away from the truth of the Gospel. And so John really aggressively attacks that false belief in saying Jesus was a human being. He had actual flesh and blood, skin and bone. It's important for us to recognize that truth because the gospel itself rides on the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross. That's the only way our sins could be paid for. And as Gnostic teachers and heretics and infiltrated the church, one of the things they taught was that Jesus didn't actually become a human being. He didn't have an actual physical body. He appeared to, but it wasn't real because Gnosticism, of course, taught that flesh or material was evil and spirit was good. And so they couldn't reconcile the truth of the gospel of who Jesus was. John says, no, he had a human body. The next word that stands out in this 
first half of verse 14 is that um, the next part of it, which is he made his dwelling among us. And this word dwelling harkens back to the Old Testament times when the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt. You remember that God picked Abraham and called Abraham to be the first of the Hebrew nation and he blessed him and made a covenant with him that he would give him land and a seed or offspring and blessing and he blessed the world through him. And so Abraham lived and began to journey into the land of Canaan and to occupy it to a certain degree. And he would build temples or excuse me, he would build altars to worship God in certain situations and reflective of certain things that God did. And he would worship at these altars. And the altars looked a lot like the altars that the pagan world around him, the Canaanites, would build. Of course, it was different because they would sacrifice children and humans. And, and of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would sacrifice animals. And so it was different, but, but similar. But as the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, where they've been enslaved for 400 years, or through the process of 400 years, they became slaves, and God raises up Moses to lead them out and they move into the wilderness. They're free from that enslavement to Israel or to Egypt, but they don't yet know how to worship and they don't really remember who God is. And so God has Moses build a tabernacle. It's a temporary structure, but it's the place in which God is going to dwell or appear or reside within the nation of Israel. The people of Israel will know God's with them because he's in the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle. God would descend on the tabernacle in a cloud. And, and it goes on to say, And then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Jesus, God coming to earth and inhabiting a human body, that human body that Jesus dwelled in has the same meaning and connection to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That Jesus, right, God in the flesh, that human body was God tabernacling amongst us. He came to dwell with us, to be with us, to live amongst us. The powerful truth is that the God who created all things, this universe doesn't exist, but through him, everything that is came to exist because of him and through him. His breath caused the universe to appear that that God who is holy and faithful, he's all powerful, he's eternal, changeless or unchanging, he's good, he's all-knowing, sovereign, he's all-present, he's loving, that God came to live amongst us, to be one of us, to dwell with us. Doesn't a visit from an important dignitary, kind of get our attention, stir us up, make us notice. If you'll humor me for just a minute, um, I was born in Bellevue, Omaha. My dad was in the Air Force and I was an Air Force baby. My parents used to like to remind me that, uh, that I cost them $5 uh, to bring me into the world, um, which, you know, of course that doesn't have anything to do with my value, you know, but, but that was just... So anyway, uh, moved away, didn't live in Nebraska. Uh, I think I was here for just a short time as a baby, but always felt like Nebraska was my home or my uh, place of origins. And then when I got to college, I came to Nebraska to go to school in Omaha, met my wife who grew up on a farm. And we lived on that farm in the 90s when the Cornhuskers were epic, right? Sorry to live in the past, but those were great days. 
So forgive me, I really am a legitimate Cornhusker fan. I do still wear my Cornhusker gear at times, okay? I know not all of you are, and I, I mean, for that I forgive you. You can't really know. Not everybody can be. Anyway, um, <laughs> you may have heard that Nebraska has a new coach, Matt Rule, right? Don't know a lot about him, but I've heard some good things. But recently, my Facebook social media uh, you know, feed starts blowing up with pictures and, and uh, you know, Matt Rule's in town, the new coach is in town, right? Came to our area. People were excited. It's like having Jesus visit. You know what I mean? They were excited that he's here, he's come to us, and everybody's noticing and everybody's stirring about it. The dynamic of a personal visit from an important person, it gets our attention. The God of the universe who created us he came to visit us, to dwell amongst us. I don't know if you guys have been watching that series, The Chosen, a kind of a dramatization, right, of the life of Christ. And down through the years as I've grown up, I've seen a few of those. When I was in my 20s, we went to Jamaica on a missions trip and showed the Jesus film. And people responded to that. There were people that came to Christ as a result of that. And seeing Jesus on the screen, though we know it's not him and it's, some of us struggle because those are never perfect and there's always something that doesn't line up with what we think or what should have looked like. But still, there's something about seeing Jesus in the flesh and interacting as a human being. I know for me, I tend to focus on the divinity of Christ, that he was God, but he was a man, all human. And he interacted with us as a human. He felt, he expressed himself. Yes, he laughed. Yes, he cried. He felt the range of emotions. Seeing Jesus comes to life is impactful, it's helpful. Um, but it's also true that coming the way he did, appearing the way he appeared, was disappointing to some. In fact, as we looked at last week, a lot of people missed Jesus. He didn't come the way they thought he would. He didn't appear in the manner that they thought he should come. And so they just missed him. Some rejected him. And we're not, you're not the Messiah we want. His presence forced people to overcome some of their obstacles if they were going to acknowledge him, if they were going to come to him. And I think that caused some disappointment in some, disappointment at what happened and, and who it was that God, you know, appeared as and the manner in which he came. It took some humility to, uh, to acknowledge him. I don't know if you've ever had somebody you looked up to, somebody you admired, you have a chance to try to meet them or uh, get close to them. When I was in seminary back in Denver, um, when our family lived there, I went to Denver Seminary, and towards the end of my time there, we got a new president, and he was from Dallas Theological Seminary, and so he had a connection to one of my heroes, one of the pastors and spiritual leaders that I really looked up to, and that was a guy you may have heard of with the, uh, by the name of Chuck Swindoll. And uh, Chuck Swindoll would come down and speak at graduations and stuff because there was a relationship there. And one time he came and he was going to teach uh, or preach in our chapel, which is a little smaller venue. And so Mary and I got to, got to go, and it was kind of exclusive. It was for students only, and so there wasn't many people there. And so afterwards we got a chance to go up and try to meet him. And so as soon as he was done, Mary and I got in line. And we're waiting, you know, as people spend too long talking to him. You know, come on, keep it short. And so we're just, you know, I'm full of anticipation, a little nervous. Going to get to meet my hero. And so uh, the time came. Finally, we got to walk up and I stuck my hand out, you know. Dr. Swindoll, you've impacted my life. 
when God was raising me up. I was in my 20s living on the farm, uh, serving. You know, I listened to your sermons while I was driving the tractor, and I just grew so much, and you just helped me so much. I'm just, you've impacted my life. Thank you for who you are and all you've done. You know, I just unload all of it on him. He looked at me in the eyes said, you have kind eyes. Then he turned and talked to Mary the rest of the time. I was like, oh, you know, I get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, people tolerate me so they can have her around. I mean, I know. I know how it is. She's the real cool one, the interesting person. The, I mean, I know it. I get it. You know, and he was quick to pip up, pick up on that like everybody else. But I was a little disappointed <laughs> with that interaction. I had a little more expectations involved in it. I don't know if you've ever had that happen meeting somebody and expecting it to go a certain way and then what really happens isn't exactly what you thought. Jesus came with humility, in humility, and he had to humble himself to come to earth. We know that he had to give up some of the attributes that he had in heaven as God. No longer was he omnipresent. He wasn't all places at all, the time, at all times. You know, God is spirit. Uh, he taught the nation of Israel. He exists in spirit and he is all present. He is everywhere within this universe all the time, and yet Jesus came and inhabited a body. And the Jewish people would say, we know this guy. He grew up in Nazareth, didn't he? We know his family's dad's a carpenter. <laughs> He's not anybody special. Does anything good come from Nazareth? They missed him because he didn't look like they thought he would. Jesus wasn't omniscient. He grew up. He learned. He studied. He grew in favor with God and man. That didn't look like what people expected God to look like. He wasn't omnipotent anymore. He performed miracles, did amazing things, but his disciples did most of those things after him through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he did some amazing things, but he wasn't as powerful, as all-powerful as people wanted him to be or expected God to be. Fortunately, he didn't give up the, the core key attributes of being sinless and being... Uh, perfect, he did exhibit those traits for us so that we could see what it would look like for a human being to live out a life as God intended. Jesus came with a different um, perspective, a different way, and I think that caused some to miss him. Though he came to dwell among us and he came to offer a personal relationship with God, a connection that was real that wasn't distant. Um, he came to break through some of the, the barriers between God and man, certainly. He came to make God relatable and tangible. We might ask, why is it that many struggled to receive him or to accept that he was who he was? Why is it? And I think, to a certain degree, it's because of the nature with which he came. Yes, he embodied uh, or took a human form, came to dwell among us. But the next thing we see in this passage is he came full of gracious truth. And I think this caused a barrier for some. Let's continue reading in 1 John chapter 1, verse 14b, the second half of the verse. goes on to say, we have seen his glory, his magnificence, the very presence of God. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, capitalized, so we know it refers to him as God. 
who came from the Father, came from heaven, came existing with God the Father for all eternity. He came full of grace and truth. By the way, I'm preaching out of the NIV this morning, 1984 version, um, because I feel like it best communicates these verses. Verse 14 goes on to say this, kind of a parenthesis. John is describing John the Baptist. Remember, he's using him uh, to, uh, to describe and to explain who Jesus was based on John's testimony. So he goes on to say in verse 15, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verses 16 and 17, he continues with his thoughts about Jesus from the fullness of his grace. We have all received one blessing after another. Some versions say we receive blessing upon blessing. Being around Jesus, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his goodness, undeserved favor, unmerited favor, just being around him, John says, we, we receive blessing after blessing after blessing. For the law, he says, was given through Moses, and as Romans teaches us, the law simply revealed to us our inability to live in the manner God intended for us to live, live up to his standards. It simply showed us that we were imperfect and unable to fix ourselves. And then he concludes, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We live in an era of grace. God's handling and interacting with the human race in a different way. In the Old Testament, we see God's judgment, his wrath, his, uh, his um, interaction with human beings uh, had a harshness to it. In the New, into the New Testament, through Jesus, we see this graciousness and a grace-filled interaction. The, the word grace has this idea of being accessible and humble. It, we know that it means unmerited favor, receiving good things from God that we've done nothing to get or receive or earn. We don't deserve them, but we still get them. But Jesus came with a sincerity. As he interacted with people, there was a connection that was real. He was available he could interact with anybody and would. Didn't matter if they were a prostitute, a tax collector, a Pharisee. Didn't matter if it was children. There was a real connection. His heart went out to his creation. So he was kind and, and he made concessions. There's a conciliatory move in Jesus when he came to earth. God conceded to us. He came to us. Um, in the Old Testament era, we see this, uh, you know, this attempt, if you will, or perspective where God's trying to teach the nation of Israel certainly about himself, and there's a disconnect. And in Jesus, God comes to us with love. He shows favor. He gives blessings, and he really is truly a gift. But here's where the rub comes. Though God came with graciousness, he came with love and kindness. He also came with two loaded barrels of truth. See, when he came, he didn't back off the truth because truth is what we need. Transparent, authentic, real, but absolute. Not subjective, objective truth that cannot be denied. How we feel about it doesn't matter. How we think about it doesn't matter. Whether we believe it or not doesn't matter. It's the absolute truth that Jesus brought. Analytical truth. What really has happened, Jesus came to describe. What needs to be done about it? Jesus came to reveal. 
He did not back off of truth. And as we hear in movies and as we see in our world, there's a question about us as a human race. Do we really want the truth? Are we really willing to embrace or look truth in the eyes? And I think we struggle with that. I'm not sure I can say we want the truth. We kind of like the make-believe lives that we build. We kind of like the pretense that we put out there. We kind of like our identities that we can create online and, and make people think we are who we want to be. We can kind of play pretend. It feels to me like our culture is only moving harder in that direction. Social media has only encouraged that. As my kids grew up, you know, social media was coming to be, and so the selfie was literally invented as my kids were younger. And pretty soon as we took pictures, boy, it mattered what angle the picture was taken from. And so the look was exactly the way they wanted it to be, very carefully crafted and formed so that the image that was portrayed. Listen, uh, I don't think this is helping us. I don't think it's moving us in a good direction. We continue to allow people and encourage people and we're permissive as a culture. You can create an identity. You can be whoever you want to be and we'll all kind of play along with that. And we like that because it doesn't force us to look into the eyes of the truth. Jesus came with graciousness, love, compassion, kindness, patience, but he still came with the truth, and that's objective. It doesn't bend. It, it's not malleable to what I want it to be. The truth is the truth. And Jesus came to flush that out, and I think that was part of the rub. I think that's part of what stopped people, inhibited people in his day, and it continues to do so today. But Jesus came with gracious truth, and he came to reveal to us who God really is. Through Jesus, we have the very revelation of God. God himself revealed, exposed, displayed so we can see him. Verse 18, the last verse in our passage this morning, goes on to say this, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus revealed to us the fullness of who God is. Absolutely uncovered and exposed and brought into uh, an ability for us to understand, right? Translated for us who God is. No longer was God distant, mystical, mysterious spirit out there in another world praying to someone we don't know. No longer was he blinding light that we can't see. But Jesus allowed us to look God in the face and to see who he really is. But again, he comes with all truth. My question for you this morning, for myself, can you, are you willing to look into the eyes of the truth? Are you willing? Most are not. I find in our culture, in our world, even myself at times, we like to pretend. We like to put on masks. We like to put on a front. We like to Make everybody think that everything's fine and we got all together and our marriage is perfect and our kids are great. We love our job and we love everything. Everything's wonderful. We like that. We like that mask that we can put on. We like to live behind that and, uh, and not necessarily let people see what's really going on. And I understand it's scary. 
We have Celebrate Recovery here, and one of the things that comes up that's difficult when somebody thinks about getting in that is, are other people going to know? Is it really confidential? Are people going to see and talk about what's really going on in my life? And that's important, and it is confidential. But why are we scared of that? Because we don't want everyone really to know what's going on. We're, we're scared to uncover and take off the mask. And yet, Jesus came to not expose us to damage us. But he said, if you come into the light, your deeds can be revealed, who you are can be revealed. And then Jesus came with the power to fix and to heal and restore. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches one of the greatest uh, lessons that's ever been taught. There's so much powerful, powerful truth in it. The Sermon on the Mount it is called, and he taught us and told us the attitude, the perspective, the heart that we must have if we're going to be able to come to God. Everybody wanted to come to God. In Jesus' time, they'd come to him. How do we get to the kingdom of heaven? How do I get in there? I want to be around God. I want to be with him. And Jesus would say things that challenged people's actual attitude and perspective, their willingness to really do what it took. First of all, he starts off with these principles. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. There has to be a humility, a spiritual poverty that I recognize and I understand. I am not a good person doing a good job better than everyone else I know. I am poor spiritually and I need God. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He goes on to say, for God blesses those who mourn, who are in mourning over their sin. Their spiritual poverty leads them to a place of, uh, of sadness before God. He says, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. He goes on to teach the attitudes, the perspectives, the behaviors, the, the mindset we must have to come to God. And I think we struggle to receive Jesus in because this is what's required for us to do it. Our pride, our pretense, our, our fake personas that we put out there and we keep, we perpetuate and prop up those keep us from really encountering Jesus. That's why so many people claim Christ and they say, I'm a Christian, I want Jesus, but it's not working. It's not changing my life. And so they drift away from the church, they criticize, they, they drift away from the relationships, try to look for an answer because we're all looking for an answer how to fix what's going on inside of us because though we don't want anyone else to know, we know there's something wrong, there's something broken and we struggle to fix it. In America, one of our greatest battles is that our country was founded with some great principles Great truths, great ideas. But one of them, which I think has led us astray, is that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we have accepted the idea that culturally, ideally, we should be happy. And if we're not happy, we need to do something about it. We need to make a change. We need to fix it. And so I'm just going to tell you that happiness is a very shallow existence. There's no real maturity and depth in happiness. Happiness is a little bubble, and we have such a hard time getting to it that when we get close, we'll protect it with everything. We're willing to engage, and we're willing to do destructive things, consume constructive substances, right? Uh, to, to do whatever we need to do. We break off relationships. We'll run away from situations. If my job doesn't make me happy, I gotta get another job. If my marriage doesn't make me happy, I gotta get another marriage. If my church doesn't make me happy, I gotta get another church. We do all that. We, we just jump from thing to thing trying to keep that bubble of happiness alive. It's so fragile and hard. Studies have been done. Are we really happy? 
We're the wealthiest nation ever. We have the most stuff, the most freedom. We can do whatever we want. 20% maybe of our culture is happy. I think that's high. (laughs) I bet it's not even 5% now. Someone postulated a psychiatrist. said happiness is an imaginary condition. Formerly attributed by the living to the dead, now attributed by adults to children, and by children to adults. Everyone else is happy. If I just get into a different situation, a different period in life, if our bubble of happiness gets popped or someone jeopardizes it, we will do anything. We start to act erratically. We lash out. Maybe you've seen people that are trying to control their external environment because that's where their happiness is, is founded. And they think, outside of me, i got to keep things good. And so somebody is jeopardizing it. Boom, you all of a sudden get an aggressive encounter with somebody that's angry because you're messing up their little world of happiness. Right? We try to control everything around us. This, of course, is erratic behavior. It's irrational behavior because it doesn't work. How many times has your attempt to control things outside of you really worked? But we keep trying. We keep believing that is where it's at. That ideal is really what we need to pursue. Studies have done, again, what is it that really makes people happy or have a sense of um, well-being? A study was done years ago of a group of men, about uh, 170, 180 men that graduated from Harvard back in the 40s, and they followed their life. What is it? that brings about this feeling of well-being inside of them. And they found that probably the best predictor of if they would have a sense of well-being throughout their life was their ability to handle emotional crisis with maturity. Their ability to handle emotional crisis with maturity. How are you doing at handling emotional crisis? Our world is full of emotional crisis. We face them every day. Every day there's more and more. We live in probably the most, what seems to be the most unstable times in my life. There's no certainty about tomorrow. What's going to happen? What's going on? Everything seems like it's in chaos. And so if we are trying to control our external pretty quickly, we're going to realize that can't be done. And so what must we do? I wanted to preach a verse as I was preparing for this. A verse came to my mind out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And then as I read that verse, I read the context, and I was reminded of who that was directed at, and I realized I was convicted by the letter written that the verse I wanted to preach came at the end of, and so I thought maybe I should share it with all of us. Seven churches are addressed in the book of Revelation. One of them is the church of Laodicea. And God himself has a message for that church, and this is what he says to the church in Laodicea. I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are, lukewarm wa- you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. And then verse 20. Jesus speaking to a church 
filled with believers. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Very humbly, what God convicted me of is an attempt to live this life with one foot in one world and one foot in another. I want Jesus. I want him in my life. I want his power and presence. I want him to fix the problems. But I also want one world in my little world of happiness. And I want to keep that. And I want to feel that. And I care about it. And to that world, that culture that's affluent and has everything and can do anything they want, Jesus says, you're lukewarm. You're not in the place you need to be. It's not a picture of reality that we can maintain and achieve a bubble of happiness. Life doesn't go that way. Things don't work out that way. If we just try to keep happiness, then we keep jumping from thing to thing to try to keep it alive. And we don't work on our marriage and see God heal it. We don't work on our family relationships. See God heal him. We don't do the things we need to do to get depth, to get maturity, to go deeper with God. He wants to enrich our lives. He wants to make us able to handle our external with power, with his power. We only get that if we'll give up the shallow existence of happiness and go deeper with him and allow him to do deeper work in our hearts. We don't need the world around us to be better. We don't need more stuff We don't need more things. We don't need a better house, better marriage, better... That's not what we need. We need more of Jesus. We need to meet him each morning. Walk with him throughout each day. We need to quit trying to control everyone and everything around us doesn't work we need to get more of him where are you at you willing to let him in to allow the truth to come in and expose and shine and heal and disinfect do the work that needs to be done inside of you again getting cool things getting better stuff appealing to your desire for stuff it doesn't really fix us it doesn't help us it doesn't even make us better people we need more of the God who created the universe the creator the sustainer the savior we need more of him in our lives instead of running to the next job the next town the next marriage the next church the next friendship would you and I stop a minute and get with God allow him to mature us to deepen us, to grow us inside so we can have a better marriage, so our children will do better because we're better, so our job will be... (laughs) There's a family in our church, the Johnsons, Dan and Kathy Johnson, they've been here a long time. And they've done a lot in this church. And Dan was a worship leader in the old building and made a tremendous impact here. And uh, ever since I've been here, Dan's been struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's and going downhill. I've never known the real Dan, but uh, I would still see him and meet him as they come to church. And when they come up to the 
doors of the church and I'd be standing out there. Dan would give me this big greeting, big smile on his face. You could just see, <laughs> see, <clears throat> see the Holy Spirit shine through him, right? Sorry, man. So he would, he would uh, just exude God. And I got to connect with that each day as he'd come up to the building. And you could just see that he was a worship leader at one time. I mean, he just, he could just, and uh, joyful and hey brother, big hug. As he's losing himself internally, he's still exhibiting and, and displaying the presence of God. Well, as time went on and things declined, it got harder and harder for him. But there's one thing he would say to me. I remember the last few times I saw him at church before he could no longer come. And he would had this line he'd say to me. He'd say, it's going to be okay. God is good. Jesus has us in his grip. And he'd say it real loud, you know. He has us in his grip. And give me a big hug. As he was losing who he was, as he got more confused and uncertain of his reality, I need more of that. Does Jesus have you in his grip? <laughs> have you invited him into your life? Are you keeping them out here so you don't get hurt anymore, so the pain isn't there anymore, the struggles? It's not working what you've done. I get it. But I'm wondering if you've really let him in, if you've really said, hey, come in. I want all of you. Dabbling in Jesus is not going to change our lives. Walking the fence, it's not going to change our lives. But Jesus can transform and heal you can change you from the inside out. We do not need to change our external environment, okay? We need a different internal climate controller. You controlling your internal environment is not working very good. But when Jesus comes in, he will adjust the climate inside so you can handle what's going on on the outside. You'll You'll be able to you'll be able to deal with it differently. I want that for you. If you're here this morning and you haven't invited Jesus in, I wonder if you'd do that today. If you'd not go through another Christmas season, go through another difficult time, feeling lost, feeling lonely, depressed, but instead invite the God of the universe into your life. And maybe you're like the church in Laodicea. I know I am. I need that message. I needed it this week. I've gotten lukewarm not hot or cold, and that's not an unbeliever, that's me. And Jesus is saying, knock, 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 will you let me in? I want to come in. I want to sit down. Would you just bow your heads for a minute? If you're here this morning, you need more Jesus in your life. Maybe you need to invite him in for the first time, or maybe you need to let him in really as a believer. Would you just lift your hand up? I want to pray for you. Anybody need more of Jesus this morning? Anybody need more of him? More of his presence, more of his power, more of his truth? God, I just pray over your church, your people here. I ask that you would invade our lives, that we would have the courage to open it up, put down the false pretense, put down the fake stuff and just let you in and let you reveal and expose who we are and what we need to do about it. We need your light to shine in us and, and restore and, and fix and rejuvenate what's been broken. And God, we need your strength. We need your power. We need your character. 
God, would you come in and change us? Control our internal environment so we can handle the external climate.